promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. Don't regret this, Lord. I'm a wonderful person. Gospel according to John, the 15th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. And let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. The danger of conditional statements, conditional thoughts, you know what I mean? The the if-then statements that, that face us in life is that we assume by doing one thing we will receive something else. So if I do this, then, then that. If I keep your commandments, O oh God, for instance, then you will love me. If I'm a good boy, I get a reward. I get a candy bar after the grocery store, right? If I eat my dinner, I get ice cream, okay? If I eat a salad, I can have a cookie, which kind of defeats the purpose of the salad. But anyways, you get my point. It's, it's very practical, it's very transactional, it's very uh, close to even the American ethos of how we do things. It's very capitalistic in its, in its nature. If, if you want to get paid, you go to work, right? If you don't go to work, usually you don't get paid. You have to do something in order to be able to get something out of it. Well, the problem is, for us this morning, is this idea, this thought pattern, is not Christianity. It isn't. Christianity is not about if-thens, because Christianity is about Christ. That's why it's Christianity, right? We forget that. We, we, we tend to think it's about the Christian, about, about developing super soldiers or something like that. No, it's about Jesus. And the danger... We come to John here, and in 1 John, and because of the fact that we don't speak first century Greek, 
We have a hard time understanding what is written here. And so we take it as best as we can, but we come to John and all we hear is law. If you do this, then you will. But that's not the biggest danger. The the real danger is that the sinner in us believes that we can actually fulfill this. And so that basically, I should just say, service is over, mic drop, go love one another, come back next week and let me know, how'd that go? Because I'd have to say, looking around the country right now, loving one another is about the farthest thing away from what we're doing right now, as, as the sun is from the earth. All you have to do is pick something, anything. The, the youth and I are going to have Sunday school after church. If you want to come, you can get a cookie and then come join me. We're talking about categories, the fact that we place people in boxes and we make decisions about people all the time. And, and it's, if we think we can do it and we think it's so easy, you'd think that we'd be doing it all the time, but we don't. This last week, Bill and Melinda Gates made the weird decision to be able to announce publicly on Twitter, of all places, that they're getting a divorce, that they're splitting up after 27 years. And they wrote this, we no longer believe we can grow together as a couple in the next phase of our lives. Bill Gates is 65, Melinda is 56, combined they're worth about $200 billion. They have it all. They've got all the money. They've got more money than they could ever possibly dream of getting rid of. They could spend a billion dollars a year, and by the time they die, they would still have more money than any of you will ever even come close to in your entire life. They've got the fame. Everybody knows the Gates name. They've got the fortune. I I learned this this week, that, that Bill Gates is the single-handedly most wealthy farmer in the entire country. He owns 240,000 acres of farmland. Not just the money and the farmland, but he also happens to run Microsoft, you know, that, that small little tiny company that's really insignificant. It's one of the biggest three most powerful companies in the entire world. We think our politicians run the world? Not really. Google. Apple, Microsoft, big three, they take care of it all. But then also you have the Gates Foundation, which has uh, done so much to help fight poverty, help fight disease in the third world. They're, They're doing more through their foundation than probably all the churches combined because they have unlimited funds to be able to do that, which we are more limited in that way. Plus, Bill Gates has been the one, because of all the work that he's done through the Gates Foundation, he's, he's one of the ones that the government is talking to about getting vaccines out there and COVID protocols and, and all, all those things. Very important, very powerful people. And yet, like many of us, like most of us, they see a relationship come to an end. They have all of that stuff. They have everything and they discover being married is hard. Amen? If my wife were here, she would be screaming that right now. <laughs> I, I'm surprised she didn't smother me at, in the night last night. But it's hard. We have to live together. We have to eat together. We sleep in the same room. Well, some of us sleep in the same room together unless you're in the doghouse and you're on the couch. We, we are supposed to be making joint decisions together and, and, and learning that 
that, that over time, I've been, I've been married now for, for almost 22 years. And I've learned that whatever I do affects her and whatever she does affects me. Whatever I say or don't say affects her and vice versa. Being one with a person is hard enough. And then we go out in the world and we think, oh, just love one another. Just love one another. And usually it's a lot easier to love strangers than it is to love the person right next door, isn't it? Probably the most difficult to do that. Or moms, it's Mother's Day. How many of you ever felt like you wish maybe you had a different child? I hear some chuckles. Parenting is hard too, right? Us dads, we just kind of go, oh, go talk to your mother. We, we just kind of leave it at that. I was listening to a podcast on Disneyland the other day, and they said, well, what do you do when a child melts down? Well, I just hand them off to their mother, and I go on a ride. Um, but it's hard. Parenting is hard. Being a mom is hard. Being a dad is hard. Being married is hard. It's hard enough to love those that are so close to you, to you that, that, that know you too well. And then we hear this command, well, just go and love one another. Oh, really, Jesus? It's hard. Well, the good news for us this morning is that we don't ever do it on our own. It's actually not based on our love at all. Jesus begins there in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. What he's saying here is he's saying, your love sucks, for lack of a better word. It's not perfect. It's not unconditional. It's not the most important, most grand, most special love in the whole world. In fact, you make judgments about your love all the time. It's where we talk about the three different kinds of love in, in the Greek, where you have the eros love, where, where you love someone because they're hot, right? It's usually how your relationship began. Or, or you have the friendship love, where it's basically you're loving people that are lovable that also love you. And then you have the agape love, which we always want to talk about as unconditional love. No, that's actually deciding love. It's not about unconditional love. It's about actually making a decision. I'm going to love the unlovable today. And that's the one that we're told to have here, and we are not very good at it at all. And that's why Jesus comes to us and says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. He's saying you have to hold on to my love. You have to make a home in my love. If you have any hopes of fulfilling any of this that I'm about to tell you, you have to have your place here in me, in the cross, in the crucified Jesus, in the Jesus who gives himself up for you, or else any other love that you are going to try to have for anybody in the world is not going to be enough. He's telling us that, that he is the focus of all things love. He says, abide in his love. Give up our attempts to love on our own, and instead we are to dwell in him if we ever want to love. And he loves us before we can love ourselves, let alone others. And he tells us that it's all about his love. And then, yes, he does say, if you have kept my commandments, we're supposed to love one another. Well, the struggle with the Greek here is that the word if can actually be translated when. When you have kept my commandments, you abide in my 
love, he's saying. That word commandments also is a difficult word. Because yes, it can be command. It can be a commandment upon you. It can be a do this or else type of a thing. But it also can just be a warrant. Like given the authority to do something. Given permission to do something from from the government or, or whatever the case may be. That it's not just you better do this or else. It's a permission to do this. And then we're told about keeping it. That word kept or keep in the Greek is a one, I love this word, because the word, when you get down right to the bare bones of it, is actually the same word you use for guarding prisoners, keeping people in custody, protecting them, preserving them. Word meaning to, to, to keep something undefiled, undisturbed, preserved, reserved, held on to. This picture of us taking his command to abide in his love and we hold on to it, we keep it close, we do everything we can to to have it be ours because we know that without it we are nothing. And all of it comes down to this joy that he wants to have complete in us. I love that verse. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That changes the understanding of commandment, doesn't it? If I tell my kids, go clean your room, there's not much joy there, is there? Son, go do the toilet. Is there joy there? If he's having joy cleaning the toilet, that's a big issue, I think, personally, for me. But it changes that understanding of commandment that it becomes a non-burdensome, a non, well, I better do this or else, I better do this or God is not going to love me type of thing. And instead it's, no, his joy gets poured into us the more we abide in his love for us. Dwelling there, holding on to it. The burdens go away, the judgments go away. Because we realize that we're already loved to death in Christ. And he tells us that we are supposed to love one another as he has loved us, but we can only know how to do that if we've dwelt in his love, if we've made our home there at the cross, if we've, if we've clung to what it is that Christ has done, then we can actually understand what it means to love one another. Because he's the one who's loved us beyond all measure. We can't know love without him, this love that has forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of our inabilities to love, forgiveness for our failed relationships, forgiveness for the fact that we find loving hard comes to us before all things in Jesus. And he he gives this to us in Mark 2. Most of you know the story that, that he's in a house and he's teaching and it's packed And these dudes bring their friend who's paralyzed and and they want to get in, but they can't. So they go up on the roof and they take the shingles off and they cut through the plywood and they lower him down in front of Jesus. Like, ta-da! And Jesus looks at him and he'd say, okay, it's a paralyzed man. Let's see what Jesus can do. I bet he's going to do some voodoo. The guy's going to get up and do a dance and then leave. And Jesus looks at the man and says, son, your sins are forgiven you. For anything else before healing him, before giving him what it is that he's wanting or what his friends are wanting. He, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone loses their minds saying, who can do this but God alone? And then Jesus has to say, so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority, the power to forgive sins. Son, pick up your mat and go home. And the guy picks up his mat and he leaves. Forgiveness coming to us as the love of Christ before everything else 
As we're sitting there paralyzed in our inability to love, he looks at us and says, your sins are forgiven you. Pick up your mat and go home. And now we're freed. We're freed to love however we can with this deciding love to say, okay, I can love in Christ. And if I fail, Christ will love on my behalf. He takes the time when we can't to to love the unlovable. Luke 5 Uh, He goes to a party at Matthew's house and the religious people lose their minds again. How can you spend time with dirty, rotten, filthy sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all these people we don't like? And Jesus says, I've come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Wanting the ones that we have a hard time loving because we think that maybe somehow we're lovable. But the biggest step for us is to get to that point where No, we need to be invited to that party too. We need to be the ones that are called just as much as we think we are. And then finally, you have him on the cross, right? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. A love that comes even in the midst of death. Start out by talking about the if-then statements and how it has nothing to do with Jesus. And that's true because the gospel is never about if-then. The gospel is about because therefore. I borrow this from Dr. Nestigan. It's about because, therefore. Because something happened, therefore something stands as true for all time right now. Because Jesus, because cross, because empty tomb, because God deigned to come to the earth for you, therefore you are loved. You are freed. You are forgiven. And it stands as that way for all time, regardless of how well you love or not, regardless of how well you are loved or not. The truth of the Christian life is to get used to this first. Because Christ always starts here. If you decide to leave this behind and try and get to some other things, it doesn't work. You're in a struggle forever. But you get here and you abide here and you make your home here. Then all those other things start to grow. They start to flourish. As Martin Luther tells us in The Freedom of a Christian, he says that the problem with the Christian life is that we're going around and we're telling a bunch of apple trees and orange trees and banana trees to grow fruit that they can't. Or we're going out to a dead tree and telling it, oh, just start bearing fruit. Because we want the fruit. Instead, he says, the goal of the Christian life is to make that tree good. Make that tree alive. Make that apple tree be able to grow apples. Before we do anything else, before apples start growing, to give life, to transform that life of that tree. He he borrows that from Jesus, where Jesus says, you will know us by our fruits. But a good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Luther telling us, and and John telling us this morning, and, and I'm telling you this morning, we abide here in the because of Christ, because that is where we start to get formed in his love. And then that gets poured out into others. But beloved, we need to be here at the cross all the time. Because otherwise, we're going to find so many other places that we think love exists, and it's going to fail us. But we abide here, and Christ says, yes, you are loved, you are forgiven. I hold you now. 
We can work on that other stuff. But for right now, because, therefore, because Jesus, therefore, love. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you.